everyone. Welcome back to the Quest Podcast. Today my guest is Bryn Rinkins, who is a writer, an artist, a world traveler. She does all kinds of really cool things, and she's going to tell us all about it today. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, it's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and welcome to Season 3 of Quest. A quest is a search for something, and this podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. To me, curiosity is part of what makes us human, and there's still so much we don't know. There's joy in discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Hi, Bryn. Welcome to the Quest Podcast. Hi, Todd. Thank you so much for having me today. So I've known you for a little while now, and I think you are a super interesting person. <laughs> we met at the top of the Edge Overlook in, uh, in Manhattan over the summer, which was really fun. Like, what kind of view is that? How cool was that? Oh, that was incredible. It was, um, I mean, I had never seen anything like that before. And what, I've been living in New York for couple months at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was really neat. Yeah. It hadn't been open that long when, um, when we went up there, but it was like an incredible view and we got to have a great conversation and we become friends. So I wanted to invite you for an interview. And just to kind of briefly, what I think is so cool about you, you're a writer, you know, you're a photographer, you're an artist, you're a traveler, you're a woman of many, many talents and skills. Too many to name in the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to get to what made you, you. So let's start with your interesting childhood um, in Nevada City, California. Talk about growing up. What was that like? Um, all right. Yeah. So Nevada City, it's, um, it is quite the town. <laughs> it's a very small little rural uh, town in the foothills of California. And I think from pretty much it's onset after onset after the uh, gold rush um, it kind of became this little haven for people trying to escape um, the suburbs or the you know the city um, and so we have it's kind of split down the middle between this little hippie community where in Nevada City itself you walk out and you've got people with dreadlocks they're smelling of patchouli oil you know you look, you look at them and you're just like, that person has reached nirvana. <laughs> ah, that's funny. Um, yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, it's a lot. It's kind of, a, um, I want to say sort of like a redneck type where somehow, even though this is, you know, Northern California, people have like Southern accents and they live on ranches and farms. Um, and so it's, uh, it's also 93% white. So we've got every type of white person. <laughs> wow. <laughs> in this town. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but my parents moved here. Um, we were living in Truckee, which is about an hour away near Lake Tahoe. And they came down here because they wanted to be around a community of people that would foster um, personal growth. When they were in Truckee, a lot of their friends were kind of going through divorces and it was during the financial crisis in 2008. And they were at a crossroads of, all right, so our life, we could get divorced and keep living um, in our shadow lives, or we can um, kind of just deal with our stuff and deal with our trauma and grow as people. And they chose the, the latter one um, and moved down here and really started doing a lot of deep personal work to no longer be um, the toxic people that they were kind of becoming. Um, and they spent 10, maybe 15 years on that path. I mean, they're still, they're still doing that stuff to this day. And what I say to people is what was so unique about my upbringing is that I, you know, as they were raising me, I was watching them grow up and they were completely transparent about the whole process too. Um, you know, sometimes whether, you know, they had had a really deep therapy session or had gone to a profound workshop, they would come home and tell my sister and I all about it and everything that they had learned and learned. And so, um, I also grew up with, uh, a really interesting rhetoric for different things in life. Um, it's, it's, uh, kind of butchering this explanation, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, but, it was, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have a really interesting sense of a lot of like healing trauma and personal work that is becoming so popular today because it's not like I'm exactly choosing to go on that path, but that has been my baseline existence um, and just, you know, how I was raised. Sure. California is an interesting state because it's really like three different kinds of states. There's like the state of Northern California, the state of Middle California, and then Southern California. And I think people think of California as like palm trees and beaches and Hollywood, but Mm -hmm. there's so much more to California than that. And, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, and geographically all uniquely different, people uniquely different, uh, you know, in these different portions of the state. I lived in California uh, for for quite a while myself. And um, it was, there were several times when, uh, when elections would come up, they would be voting to try and split the state up. You know, mm-hmm. none of that ever really happened, but they would just start to discuss it and talk about it because, you know, Southern California uses Northern California's water. They don't like it. You know, like there's the industry is all different. Like it's in, in, you have to think about like a state like that, that is, that is vertical is a difficult mm-hmm. state to actually even manage and run as a governor because oh, absolutely just geographically how you have to like people think of you know texas is a very large state and how to manage it but it's still all the south you know mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. the, when it comes to the climate when it comes to the terrain and the geography there's not a lot of uh difference in it so california was a weird state to be crafted anyways and very unique to our country um, certainly yeah. with people um is nevada city is it a big city or is it a small town Oh, it's a very small town. I think the actual city has maybe about 11,000 people. Mm. Um, it's called Nevada City, but it's it's tiny, tiny little town. In our entire county of Nevada County, there's, I think, about uh, 90,000 people. Yeah. Um, 
and that's spread out over a pretty big it stretches all the way to Nevada um, to the Nevada border um, yeah it's very small very small and uh, tell me about your schooling you so you you went to college <laughs> tell me about your college experience where did you go what did you get your degree in so I went to the University of California at Berkeley and got a degree in global studies. Um, I was a transfer student though. I had uh, left high school early because the education system in this town was terrible, terrible. <laughs> and I, I do not thrive when I'm not being challenged. And I would show up every day to high school and be like, all right, time for daycare. Um, <laughs> and so I left early and went to community college and then um, in 2017, I got accepted to Cal um, and their global studies program was brand new the year that I began going there. And it was because it was sort of a branch off of political economy. And they wanted to have a degree that basically aims to explain why the world is the way it is. And yeah. coming from my background with my terrible, terrible education, <laughs> I had no idea why the world was the way it was. And so that was um, what appealed to me the most. And what was so cool about this um, new program was that unlike everything that had come before it, it wasn't aiming to teach students uh, necessarily like information. They were aiming to teach students how to find their own information and how to critically understand it. They wanted to take this multifaceted approach where you could look at any discipline and sort of cross-reference it with another discipline and see where those points connect and how that shapes the world around us. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> when did you start writing? Um, let's see. I started writing um, in the summer of 2019 after I graduated. Um, and it was for a small publishing firm in San Diego who they publish um, non or they publish like nonfiction educational materials that they distribute to high schools and middle schools across the country. Um, and so they're really they're really small books, sort of books that will be found in the library if students had to do a research project and, and whatnot. And for me, that was that was the greatest thing I could have ever stumbled upon because um, I only spent two years at Cal and that was not enough. By the time I was gra I graduated, I had just begun to get the hang of things um, academically. And so I wanted to just keep writing research papers. Um, and that's exactly what I stumbled upon. So my first book that I wrote was um, called How Has the Me Too Movement Changed Society? And it was uh, the second in the Me Too series that that firm published. And it wasn't necessarily describing the Me Too movement itself, but sort of how society looked before that and how society looked after. Um, yeah. And yeah. When you were growing up in, um, in California, did you grow up spiritual or religious? I grew up, I would say spiritual. Um, my parents were never um, ones to to sort of put their own philosophy on us. Granted, of course it happened um, because of these workshops they would go to. And, you know, he'd come, my dad would come home and be talking about how God is within all of us, but also we are all one, yada, yada. And I was like, totally, totally uh, got it. You know, so that was right. um, sort of my baseline, but I never grew up, you know, Catholic or Christian or any major religion. Um, 
I was just sort of taught to have an open mind and right. to fully understand that we are all connected to this greater power. Going to uh, to Berkeley, it must have been a like a an eye opening experience to go to a college like that coming from a small town. What was that experience like? So coming from a small town, well, this is sort of a funny story. Um, when I first started going to Berkeley, you know, Berkeley is, you know, uh, across the bay from San Francisco. Everyone yeah. on the East Bay refers to San Francisco as the city. But when I would come to Berkeley or go home, I would be like, all right, I'm coming back to the city. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? Why are you going to SF? I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm going to Berkeley, the city. <laughs> um, but what was what was the first thing that I actually really didn't like about Cal was that all of the students there, and I say all very generally, obviously people, you know, um, are all different in their ways, but what the kind of blanket vibe was, was super competitive and really isolating. It seemed that people couldn't, just in casual conversations that you would have with friends or peers, there was no letting their guard down. There was no having a real conversation just for conversation's sake. It was very much like, I'm on this one track thing. Nobody's here to help me. I'm self-sufficient. And that bled over into these just really simple social situations. Hmm. Um, and I hated it. I hated it um, in that regard. That, that yeah, to just, me, that reminds me of just generally my Southern California experience. That might be a California thing more than even a Berkeley mm. thing. I feel like mm. the, there's a lot of people on their own personal tracks and you don't get a sense of if you can trust these people or if they will trust you. And I don't think friendships mm -hmm. are the same. I grew up in the Midwest and that friendships were treated differently there than I felt they were treated in California. I could be totally mm -hmm. off on this, but but it seems like people have their goals and their tracks and and that's it. Like they, yeah. anyone else is a threat to that maybe. Yeah, no, I, I do see that. I definitely do see that um, in California a lot where people on the face, you know, when you first meet somebody, it's, it's like almost overly friendly. Like, hi, how are you? You know, and I, I use that high-pitched voice very intentionally there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of behind closed doors, it's, it's a, uh, it's not as friendly. And on the East Coast, I, I um, feel the opposite where people might come off as rude and aggressive initially, but when you're actually in those smaller settings, people are so friendly and so warm. And maybe that's just a personal experience, but I, uh, I've seen it quite a few times. I think I would agree with that, really. How many, uh, how many countries have you traveled to at this point? 33. 33. And you are what, 22 yeah. years old? 22. 22. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's get Having, into your travel. Let's do let's Yeah, actually, I want to make a little bridge though, yeah. back to the Cal, back to UC Berkeley thing. So when yeah. I began attending school, I had been to maybe 28 countries. Um, I grew up in a small town where kids, you know, were doing, um, you know, they weren't exactly in line with society's rules and regulations right. <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then getting into Cal, you know, these kids had spent their entire life just getting to that point, getting in accepted. And so, you know, so many of them had never drank in or smoked or, you know, really partied. And I was sitting here like, I'm retired from that, from that lifestyle. <laughs> um, so it made me feel really old 
in that regard. Um, just having so much life experience, especially with travel and stuff, you know, a lot of people hadn't even, you know, their whole life was career focused and focused on school. And um, anyways, yeah, I just wanted to offer that two cents. Three, as well. 33 countries is amazing. Like, so when did, you, when did you start traveling? How little were you when this began and how much of this was adult life travel? So my first, um, so I, my parents and I had gone to Mexico a couple times. Um, but when I was 15, my best friend, Lexi Alford, um, and her parents invited me to go to Japan with them. Um, and they said, you can come just work, or Lexi was like, you can come just work in my mom's office, you know, as much as you can to pay for the trip. Um, her mom worked in a travel agency. And so I, I did that as much as humanly possible so I could afford this trip. And that was, that was the first one. Um, and then we can give Lexi a little soundbite here if we want. Do you want to tell everyone just in a nutshell, Lexi's kind of her <laughs> claim to fame? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Lexi Alford, um, I love that girl. She's, she's amazing. She is a fierce force of nature. Um, she grew up in a small town with me. Her mom owns a travel agency and unsure of you know where to go to college, what to do with her life. She just began traveling and traveling and traveling. And that's something that she had done growing up um, her whole life because her mom owned the travel agency. And so every year they probably would take two or three trips. Um, and then after she graduated from community college, she wanted to take a gap year off and simply travel. Then towards the end of that gap year, she realized that she had been to about 80, maybe 85 countries. And it dawned on her that she could potentially become the youngest person to travel to every country. And so she did. <laughs> and she has and a so Guinness Book exactly. World Record for that too. Yes. Yeah. Yes, she does. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. And it was not, it was not easy for her at all, but she did it. And it's amazing. And uh, now, you know, traveling has become her entire life and her career focus. And she really is trying to press the message, the message that women, especially that this, this world is not something to be afraid of and that, you know, you can travel and that you should. <laughs> right. And, yeah. yeah. I came across someone the other day. Um, her name was, I'm drawing a blank on her last name right now, but her first name was Cassie. And she was the first woman Cassie on the record. Okay. Yeah. She traveled <laughs> to every country in the world. And I saw her mm -hmm. on, um, like, I can't remember if it was TEDx or a speaker's site or what. Now, not, not Lexi's record of the youngest, but still someone to travel to every country in the world. Like, I can't even fathom that. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know if I have enough years left in my life to go to every country at this point, or how long <laughs> it would even take a person to do. Like, it's just mind boggling to me to think that someone could actually go to every every country that there is is just yeah amazing well, well thankfully for thankfully for Lexi she you know for those first 70 80 countries they weren't super rushed it wasn't like okay go to the airport get the passport stamp leave they were actual you know real vacations and trips for their parents to experience those places right and I think that when it comes to breaking that world record um for people that don't have that background it becomes sort of just this airport hopping situation where you're not actually experiencing the culture and the richness of these countries. You're just collecting passport stamps right. and, and evidence for Guinness. And so because that wasn't Lexi's case, I think that really sets her apart from um, a lot of other people that have tried to break this record. 
what appeals to you about traveling? Is it the sightseeing, the food, the people, the language, the culture? What is it that gets Bryn excited about going to another country, picking a destination? So, so there's two things. Um, it's either culture or nature. Um, on the cultural side, I think that growing up in this small, completely white town, um, there's, I, I didn't understand all the ways in which people could actually be different from each other. And that, that was kind of what it, the way I felt about it initially. So I wanted to experience different cultures and see um, how, you know, what foods they ate, what art they created, what was their history. You know, I wanted to hear from the voices of people that actually grew up places and lived there, what it was like, um, just for curiosity's sake. Now, now that's changed a little bit. And while I, I understand more the ways in which we're all different, I think that what appeals to me the most is finding those beautiful little parts of all of us that are actually the same. Um, because I just think that uh, we think of different cultures and different people as different. And that's so far from the case because we have so much more in common with somebody from the other side of the globe than we do differences. And I like to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of your travel experiences. So just in of, uh, you know, 33 countries, does this mostly, is this Europe that you may basically were going through? Have you been through Asia, Australia? Have you, what continents have you covered? Give me the rundown on where you've been. So, so I've been, it's been mostly Europe mostly Europe. And the reason why I have so many countries there is because for a good part of it, I was traveling with Lexi. So it wasn't in-depth travel. It was a lot of just um, passport stamps kind of going through airports and stuff. So um, I've really done three big Europe trips. Um, And um, so sort of Scandinavia. And then one summer, it was my first time. I was 17 years old. And it was my first, our first time actually traveling without parental supervision. And we did from uh, Amsterdam, Germany, Switzerland, Italy. And then actually it's funny when we were in Italy, we're like, we don't really want to leave. We don't want to come home yet. And we had been gone for about a month. And so we book tickets to Morocco and I call my dad in Venice and I go, Hey dad, how's it going? Um, how do you feel about me going to Morocco? And um, he was like, well, I just think that, you know, North Africa is, a, you know, it's pretty dangerous. You know, there's a lot of political instability. I don't think it's a good idea. And I'm sitting there on the phone and I just have to go, well, I already bought the ticket. Um, <laughs> so, and, and that, um, yeah, just kind of a funny story. But that trip was, even to Lexi, was unlike anything we had ever done before it was for about a month and a half it was just pure euphoria it was Mm. it was insane it was insane there's no other way of describing you mentioned nature being a part of you know one of the things you enjoy going to other countries um but it must excite you to see stuff like the eiffel tower and see the city see the touristy stuff or is that are you resistant to that Oh, I'm definitely not resistant to it. Um, I, I think that part of the reason why I um, focus more on nature is that 
for most of the traveling that I've done, I've been pretty poor. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, paying to go to the Vatican, like, yes, we'll do it. But it's, you know, what are we going to sacrifice in order to do that? Sure. Um, just because that sort of inhibit it, inhibits us versus going on like very long hikes through the Swiss Alps. You know, that's, if anything, like that's saving, you know, a day's worth of money because we're just going to be on top of a mountain. Um, but that's just the financial side. I absolutely love the, um, I love architecture. My dad's an architect. So I have a a whole different um, appreciation for that kind of stuff, especially also coming from um, the United States where, you know, the oldest buildings were built in like maybe the 1800s, you know, 1700s if you're on the East Coast and going over to Europe and you're like, this is, this is something that's been, you know, that's centuries older than my entire country. Um, I have a funny story to tell about that kind of thing. And I, <laughs> Many years ago, yeah, I had right. a chance to move into um, the one of the like basically the first house my family built when they immigrated from Germany. So it's this old farmhouse mm. on some property, and in in my parents had rented it for years. And finally, I had the opportunity I could move into it and take it over, and and um, and I loved it. Like it was, I had fond memories of that when I was a boy. So I move into this farmhouse, and it's a little over a hundred years old. And I called a mm -hmm. friend of mine who lived um, in Normandy, in. Uh, she said, oh, I'm so happy for you. You finally get to move in that farmhouse. She's like, how old is it again? And I go, it's a little over 100 years old. I'm all proud about it. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I'm in an old place too. And I go, how old is yours? She goes, 400 years old. And I was like, what? You're like, all right, I'll just stop talking, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, I can't imagine a house standing after 400 years old, but she's in this 400-year-old you know, house in Normandy. And I was like, wow. wow. Okay. Wow. Crazy. the arrogance of americans I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, um yeah so there, so i do have this i'm oh, sorry oh, go ahead no no go ahead say what you're gonna say um no so i do have this appreciation for um old architecture as well as art because i'm an artist and i just i love to see the progression of um just i don't know the history of art in, in museums and whatnot the cultural significance blah 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 when it comes to nature, um, it's a whole different thing. And I think I appreciate it way more because I've grown up in this world where, you know, the, you don't know what's going to be around in 30, 40, 50, a hundred years. Um, right. and that's where my love of photography has really come in because I like to sort of fantasize about my grandkids, my great grandkids and being like, see this, see this island here that I visited, you know, like it doesn't exist anymore. And I saw it with my own eyes and this world used to be really, really beautiful. And it's, um, it's a sad thought, but it's, it's also very true. And I think that people really ought to experience what this world has to offer. Um, not only like while they still can, but I think that also by seeing these incredible far off places it makes the world a lot smaller and I think makes you value taking care of this earth a lot more. Yeah, it's a great segue into what I want to get into next. But, you know, we might be saying that about, about New York. You'll mm -hmm. be telling our kids, our grandkids about how New York used to not be underwater. And mm -hmm. uh, at the time we're recording this, this episode doesn't come out until September, but as we're recording it, it's the end of July. And uh, two days ago, 
there was a report that was signed by 14,000 climate scientists that talk about we are now at a point of no return on climate change. And, um, and we may see Miami underwater. We may actually really see mm -hmm. significant parts of Manhattan underwater soon, sooner than mm -hmm. people thought that this is happening mm -hmm. much more rapidly. And I want to segue into this because this was something really powerful that, that struck me when you did this. You recently went to Iceland. And I want mm -hmm. you to tell me about that trip because you have these, I hope people that are listening go to your Instagram and see your beautiful volcano pictures and some of the stuff you did there. But you actually <laughs> kind of recognized some climate change, global warming while you were there. Let's talk about that trip mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, so, um, well, man, Iceland was at the top of my bucket list since I found out it was a country. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you think and it was just a giant floating ice cube for a while? <laughs> I, you know, actually, when I first found out about Iceland, I thought it was Greenland and I thought Greenland was Iceland. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying, I can't wait to go to Greenland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong country, uh, wrong place. <laughs> um, this is fine but... Berkeley education, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they corrected that. That was actually one of the first things that they, they got there and said, all right, let's make sure you know where the countries are in the world. Um, <laughs> but, but how was, so Iceland looked beautiful. The pictures you took were amazing. But what was, what was that like for you? What was that trip like? Tell me about it. So that, oh, there's so, there's so many things. Um, first of all, it was right, you know, it was one of the first places that opened up to international travel. Uh, in the during the COVID nineteen um, pandemic, and so um, I I don't I couldn't explain it exactly, but I was like, we're going right now. I don't care if I'm going by myself. I don't care if I'm going with my friend. I'm I'm going. I bought the ticket. And I was like, I'll figure out the rest later. Um, yeah. It's it's time to do this, and that was really nice because I think that um, usually Iceland's very 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 heavily impacted with tourism because of COVID it was pretty it was pretty empty um and we on maybe I want to say maybe our eighth day um we showed up to Glacier Lagoon and Diamond Beach and Glacier Lagoon is where um the melting glacier they'll you know the giant pieces fall off into um this bay and float out to sea and then once they're out at sea the waves sort of break them down and these big, well not big, but these small icebergs kind of wash up on the black sand beach and give this I mean, beautiful, beautiful contrast of, um, you know, ice on a black beach. And I had seen pictures, Lexi had gone there and I had wanted to go from the moment I laid my eyes on those photos. And when we got there, we showed up pretty late at night um, we ended up camping right on the beach and just sleeping in our van. When we got there, we're like, all right, this is Diamond Beach. I couldn't see a single iceberg on the beach, not one. Mm. And um, my friend and I were like, what's, you know, what's going on? Um, we couldn't really, you know, find Wi-Fi or anything at the time. So we fell asleep. And in the morning, there were more icebergs that had washed up um, over, over the course of the night. Um, and then we spent... We spent a really long time there and throughout the day we were just watching these icebergs on the beach melt um and for and then we kind of were talking to other people that had been there before and they were like yeah this is the least amount of ice that we've ever seen um 
And this was early June at the time. This wasn't even the middle of summer. Um, so it was just pretty crazy to, you know, think that one day, not only are the, you know, they're not going to be icebergs on the beach here, but the glaciers are going to have all melted and there won't even be this area. In fact, actually, um, Glacier Lagoon and Diving Beach itself wasn't even a thing, I think, 70 years ago, because the glaciers were actually, main, you know, staying frozen. They weren't melting. Oh. Um, so it was, it was really interesting, you know, being in such a beautiful place um, and being astonished at the beauty of it. But it was super sad also because, you know, we were looking at, you know, climate change happening right before our eyes literally watching icebergs you know float downstream and out into the sea rapidly um so yeah one yeah. of the things people don't understand about this uh, glacial melting is an iceberg in water doesn't really affect much and mm -hmm. you know obviously we're worried about these things melting and contributing to 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 sea level rise but it's it's the ice on land that's the problem <laughs> so when you have a glacier on top of a mountain that melts and that water gets down into the ocean that's where the problem is the mm -hmm. ice that's already out there floating on water isn't the problem it's what's coming off land that's the problem mm -hmm. and then also mm -hmm. you have this entire this engine of how the cold water the fresh water is mixing with warmer waters and how it's going to kind of stop this entire engine and create a cataclysmic mm -hmm. chain of events, which is what I think people are worried about right now. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the melting of Greenland, I'm pretty sure you might want to fact check this, but if, you know, once Greenland melts, that's the way that that's going to disrupt ocean cycles. It's going to make Europe, it's going to throw Europe into an ice age. That is one of the biggest problems is Greenland's yeah. ice shelf melting yeah. is one of the, that will be a major trigger for other events for sure. Yeah. And that's happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, Al Gore did his Inconvenient Truth documentary and, you know, say mm -hmm. what you will about Al Gore, whether you people like him or not, you know, I did really enjoy his documentary. It was very frightening yeah. to me what he put together mm -hmm. and Greenland was one of the locations he went to and he shows like a, a crevice uh, in in, uh, in, in the ice shelf and you see the water just pouring down into this, you know, seemingly, you know, bottomless fissure in the ice and, uh, and he's standing next to it. <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. this is incredible. And he's like, here's the problem here. And he's, he says, this water that's rushing down into this is not only, you know, continuing to melt and make this fissure larger, but it's lubricating the layer between the ice shelf and the rock. And what it's going mm. to do is cause this to break and slide off. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's truly frightening. And when he talks about these projections in the, in the future, and you know, with scientific statistics, there's always someone who can counter what you claim. You know, that's the problem mm -hmm. in this whole world is you people will argue it one way. It can also be argued another way. You're always going to find a doctor to sign off on things this way or that way. Scientists signs off this way, that way on the same topics. So you'll never mm -hmm. really get the straight facts of where this will go. Maybe these are long swinging natural cycles that we haven't been humans long enough on the planet to understand what's happening, or we are headed towards some level of apocalypse of the future, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and that's not for us to debate on this podcast, but 
Um, we'll leave that to the pros. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I kind of think we're seeing it. I mean, I, I write about that in my book, this, this, all this stuff kind of coming to a head like this, uh, mainly because mm -hmm. I feel human beings are like cockroaches on this planet. There's way too many of us. <laughs> And we're mm -hmm. contributing to too much change and the earth is a living thing and people aren't treating mm -hmm. it that way. They treat it like it's a garbage dump and, mm -hmm. uh, and every, all our actions build up to cause these, these issues. And we are yeah. pretty much human beings are the prime suspect for why this stuff is happening to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunate. And I'm, yeah. And I'm seeing that um, in California, in my hometown, um, crazy, crazy amounts. I'm staying back in my parents' house in Nevada City this summer, and they're in a crazy, crazy drought. And there's a beautiful river that um, that's pretty, pretty close to where I live. And I, I think of it like I think of a church. Like that's sort of my place of meditation and worship. It's where I've, you, you know, just really become connected and healed. Um, by the earth and to the earth um, and usually usually most years you can't go swimming in it until uh, maybe the end of June early July because otherwise you know the the snow melts too powerful and you'll get washed downstream and so I, I show up here in the middle of June and the water levels are resembling that of early September maybe even late August um, and I can feel it in the air. I can feel, you know, if I walk outside, I can literally feel the moisture getting sucked out of my body. Um, and, you know, in, my, in Nevada City, it's in the same line as Paradise and Chico. It's a little bit further south, but it's same. It's in that same foothill belt. And, um, and the smoke here from fires. We just had a fire that was about 15 miles from my house. And all my friends, you know, they talk about their fire go bags and their evacuation strategies and where they would go. Um, my parents, they, they moved here wanting to build a self-sustaining kind of um, uh, like homestead area. I have a garden and an orchard and um, sustainable water coming down and stuff. And in the past several years, my dad has been working on um, an emergency irrigation system that would take that would pump water from our pool up onto the roof of our house and, and spray the fire so that hopefully our, our house would be protected mm. and um this is the reality now this was not the reality when i was a kid i'm yeah. 22 years old this wasn't a reality you know six years ago um and california has really a lot of sad. problems a lot of their lakes and reservoirs are dangerously low and dangerously uh, low yeah yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I remember someone told me once, <clears throat> I remember I would go out in the, in the Mojave Desert and all like off-road and take Jeeps and in uh, four-wheelers and stuff out there and camp. And, and, uh, and I love desert camping is it's so peaceful. It's almost overwhelming to you. And I remember, but I remember someone mm -hmm. telling me one time as we're driving back um, and, you know, you start to see civilization again. And, mm -hmm. the, and this guy told me, he said, you know, the desert just wants to reclaim all this, but we keep just pushing mm -hmm. it back and stopping it. So there's actually literally a moment where you see sand and then green backyards, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, this, this is the point. Like if those people quit watering their lawn, the desert would overtake their homes 
and it would mm -hmm. just become which is what you see a lot in uh, in Colorado you'll see these beautiful beautiful homes these absolute mansions of properties but their yards look like crap because it's mm -hmm. that's basically the gateway to the west and like they mm -hmm. don't really necessarily water their lawns so it's all that kind of rocky sandy consistency which is the beginning of heading toward and you know into the desert and so it's really mm -hmm. interesting to see kind of the weedy plant life that grows there and not these because because their whole culture and their way of doing things is so different Mm -hmm. But in California, you have to have a green lawn, to, you know, and it doesn't matter if there's a drought, a Hollywood celebrity will complain if they can't water their lawn. <laughs> right, which is which is so funny to me, because here in this town, people don't, I mean, people do have manufactured or uh, like, you know, nice gardens and stuff. But most people I found are really adamant on planting wildflowers and um, just the vegetation that's natural to the area, because they understand that they can't be spending all of California's water on, on their yard and they want to maximize, you know, what they can because um, that water does have to go to SoCal. You know, we're yeah. right at the base of the Sierra mountains and, um, and there, there really is this sort of um, idea around here that this water does need to be shared. And what's really funny is when you're driving down the five coming towards LA or San Diego, there's all these signs of, you know, telling, telling NorCal people to dam up the, the lakes so that we can, you know, send more water to the Central Valley and the farms and stuff. And what they really don't understand is that we're already sort of at capacity for that. We can't dam up any more things because that's going to be way, way too devastating for the rest of California's um, ecosystem. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's pretty bizarre to witness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a book coming out in the, in the future, and I have a chapter in it about just this living planet and how people should understand how the earth works. And, and the thing is, is that nature is the earth and nature wants, the, nature wants to get us off of it. It's a, <laughs> it does not like us right now. You know, you, maybe you can say COVID is part of that, you know, in some way, some people would maybe say that was, this virus was there for a reason to get rid of our mm -hmm. overpopulation. But, you know, the desert wants to reclaim where it was at and moisture wants to move from one place to another and it will take it from one place and put it somewhere else. And it's going to do what it can to try and survive and create a different mm -hmm. system. And if that mm -hmm. means purging the 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 ticks that are on it or the fleas or whatever we are to the earth that's what it's going to try and do for survival and, and i fully this, believe that this isn't yeah, necessarily we, something so mechanical but rather a reaction to something that we're doing to it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah i fully think so um recently i've been i've been uh thinking about sort of just indigenous wisdom and how humans are really meant to be the caretakers of this planet. I was actually thinking about, I forget what tree it is, but the only way it's planted is by squirrels who um, accidentally hide their nuts and then can no longer find it. Um, and you know, and there's, there's all these things where the actual animal life um, contributes to the reproductive cycle of plant life and stuff. And I was just thinking about, um, I was actually looking out at my parents' orchard at these fruit trees. Um, and how much care and time was put into the baby trees. You know, it has to be like five years before they can even start 
um, producing fruit and stuff. And I was just thinking, man, like humans really should be planting trees. You know, like how many trees have you planted in your life, Todd? I've actually planted a lot of trees, actually. Okay, good, good. I think <laughs> I've, I've done my part for sure. Um, good, good. But, I but think most people most can't. People most people can't say that. No, no. There yeah. is a there is a great organization out there that started as the Million Trees Project, which is now called the Billion Trees Project, and they're mm -hmm, definitely mm -hmm. doing their part to get trees in the hands of people. The problem is companies that just take all the trees, but never do their diligence of replanting trees and they just consume. Mm -hmm. There's a great mm -hmm. line in the Matrix movies where, um, where uh, uh, the, yeah, the line is about how most mammals, most life on earth try to adapt to their environment and contribute to it and try to help. And you were mentioning like squirrels that would plant a nut and the tree would grow, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But that humans just want to consume everything that's what they want to mm -hmm. do. And that was one of the, the big things in that, the kind of the, the, the subplots of the Matrix movie was how we're just kind of a virus that wants to wipe everything out, even though we should I, be trying to live in balance like other mammals do on the planet. Right. And I think that that's a total product of um, colonization. I don't think that, you know, indigenous communities and tribal peoples, you know, way, way, way back in the day had that same attitude at all. I think that was something that was heavily taught, you know, to, to the world, especially like through conquest and stuff of, oh, well, let's just go expand so we can take more and more. And there's been no giving back. And it's so innate in um, just the world's culture now that that's the case. And uh, man, it should not be that way. Right now, we're at seven and a half billion people on the planet, and we're seeing our resources be stretched very thin, and we're going to hit 10 billion people by 2050. And yeah. what happens is kind of exponentially, these populations just keep, keep blowing up. The more people there are, the more mm -hmm. people are procreating, the more people we have. And, mm -hmm. um, and we've stretched everything too thin. And even our infrastructures to be able to support that many humans on this planet is difficult. So even... Mm -hmm. You know, not only are we consuming natural resources, but we can't create enough new stuff, enough new technology, enough new ways to be able to handle this. And I think mm -hmm. the hard part about this is that people don't want to address the tough questions. When I mentioned um, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth documentary, what that left me with when it was over was a sense of this problem is too big, it can't be fixed. Where I think mm -hmm. what Al Gore meant was for us to be inspired by this and want to make a change and have more things go green and recycle more and like all this, like, I didn't get that message. To me, the message mm -hmm. was this problem was so enormous, it can't be fixed. So why bother? Mm -hmm. That was the I message. I think a lot of people were left with that message too. Um, and in all the sort of documentaries that have come out since too, it, it's a fine line between getting people motivated and energized to do their part or leaving them completely hopeless. And it's not gonna be the same for every person. You know, that fine line is different based on individuals. Um, but I mean, most people that I talk to that are my age or younger have simply accepted it. I think that the majority of my friends are like, oh yeah, I'm not having kids. Like, why would I have kids? This planet isn't gonna be here. You know, I don't want, like, it's, it's irresponsible to do that. Um, I sort of agree with that a little bit. It would be tough to want to see your child live in 
a hell on earth potentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people yeah. people complain about the u.s policing the world right well this has been as long as i've been alive this has been going on you know we need to stay out of other countries businesses why are we here why are we doing this like we're always interfering and um and i get that like we probably have stuck our nose into a lot of people's business that we don't need to or created wars for resources that we didn't necessarily need to do and and the americans have been bad in that regard uh mm-hmm. but you know is it right for the u.s to lead a the climate change movement to reverse this? Do you start policing nations? Because like what Al Gore said was, you know, right now we have these issues, you know, China, people are getting motor vehicles for the first time. Like people are driving. Now think of all the Chinese that are going to be driving cars that weren't driving cars before and the pollution that'll come from that. Mm -hmm. The standards that these countries are willing to accept or not accept, you know, for emission standards, right? And then you look at the Mm -hmm. developing third world countries that are just getting heavy industry they're not going mm-hmm. to filter the pollution they put out of their smokestacks. Like that's mm-hmm. not going to happen in some of these places. And it, you know, you're in the state of California where it's like overkill with vehicle emission standards and like lots of things. They've always been on the cusp of environmental change way back before anyone was, but that's just one state. And I think it's funny, mm-hmm. I've used this example before about straws being outlawed. <laughs> oh God. It, it took years. <laughs> for straws to become outlawed in one state, right? Because what happened was there were so many focus groups that were looking at this. Well, what happens to the people that manufacture the straws? We don't want to put people out of work. What happens to the industry behind this? Will people accept getting a paper straw or needing to go buy a stainless steel or bamboo straw to carry with them to a restaurant? Like they went Mm -hmm. through, they studied this forever to figure out whether they wanted to just outlaw straws that were just a small part of an overall pollution problem. <laughs> yeah, the tiniest it, part. The, the tiniest smallest. part. It took forever for one state and it doesn't even matter because no one else bothered with it. Mm-hmm. It's funny, it's funny. When that happened, I was uh, living in San Diego and I was working in this little diner. And um, my favorite part of working in this diner was making milkshakes. Cause I could make the best milkshake. And, <laughs> um, and then they had the, the straw ban. And I don't know if you've ever tried to drink like a real nice thick milkshake through a paper straw, but it ruins it. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that would work. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awful. It's a terrible, terrible experience all around. Um, and so people would go across the street to Starbucks, which was still selling, um, you know, plastic straws. And then come in and order a milkshake. Mm. And uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, but yeah, you're totally right. It's just one small piece of a much broader problem. And it's, I think, I think that top-down legislation is the only way that things are going to actually change. Um, And I think Europe just proposed um, a huge, a huge um, bunch of laws of stuff of trying to reduce their carbon emissions I think in half by 2030. And so we'll see, we'll keep we'll stay posted on whether or not those are accepted and oh. stuff. But like, cause you cannot rely on the consumer, especially when in, you know, we've been so conditioned to live our lives based on self-interest. It's not, you don't go and buy a straw and, or, you know, something with a straw and think, hmm, like, how is this, is this good for the planet? Is it good for me, blah, blah, blah. You just think, 
I don't want to have a soggy straw in my milkshake, you know, and um, versus if it was top down legislation and they weren't even produced in the first place and you take away that choice of the consumer, then they're not going to think about it. They're just going to be like, okay, this is how it is. Um, And I don't even know if I believe in that, what you're saying. I actually have a much more grim outlook for this. And um, really explain. Well, uh, I think that And I think this is a fundamental thing with human beings all around the globe, no matter where you're at, you will not make a change in the way you live or the things you do, your ideals until you're faced with a cataclysmic end in front of you and you can see it. And I think Mm -hmm. we see that for the first time with COVID. We actually scared people into their homes over the threat of you could get this invisible airborne virus that will kill you. And people stayed Mm -hmm. in their homes for nearly a year. When Times Square mm-hmm. is empty of people, you have done it, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you might call this top down, but because there was an order that was made to, for people to quarantine, right? But, mm-hmm. but I don't look at it that way. I think people were actually looking death in the face of this mysterious invisible killer. Yeah. And they were like, screw this, I'm staying in. I don't even know if it was necessarily mm-hmm. listening to the leadership as much as they were seeing it firsthand in front of them. And mm-hmm. I think the day the tsunami of water comes in and doesn't leave Miami or you see buildings crumbling as a result of whatever is going on down there or whatever, when people start to see it, that's when they'll mm-hmm. start to make the change. It's because They're going to have to see something bigger because right now they're right. like, yeah, some icebergs are melting. All right. You know, like, okay, well, so- how's this going to make it? I don't see anything. I don't see a problem, you know? Right, right. And so this is this is what I was saying about traveling and seeing the nature and stuff and making the world seem smaller is, you know, people that say they've never been to California. Okay. And, you know, they might get some smoke in the air on the East Coast, you know, big whoop, you know, they have pollution plenty. Um, But for people that have either grown up in California or have traveled to a beautiful place and have some sort of personal connection, once they see that that has burnt down, it puts it in their face. Yeah. You know, it's no longer that this is a problem on the other side of the country. It's like this place that I've, that you have that personal connection to is no more. Yeah. Um, and I think that's yeah. the biggest issue that we're facing right now is that, you know, cause we've seen these cataclysmic disasters happen, but until it's actually affecting like you and your life and something about your um, experience, you're not, you're not going to want to do shit. <laughs> right. And, and I remember, you know, in the last few years, the fires have been so bad in California that you would see, you know, people driving down the highway with fire on both sides and like the, the smoke around for so long that every picture anyone would take looked apocalyptic. And when you see mm-hmm. that, what you see is what you get. You are viewing an apocalypse in a way. And that's just mm-hmm. one small little portion of the earth that you're seeing that happen in what's going to happen when we get to that point of no return where we start to see excessive droughts fires flooding all over the world and Mm -hmm. then it is too late but then humans will finally go oh i get it you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. so it's uh it's weird and again again you know we're debating this back and forth on different different points but i hope people think about this stuff when they hear it and and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if people think that recycling an aluminum can is helping or not, or what they can even do. Maybe they're lost on it. Maybe people need to be educated more. Uh, I don't know. 
Well, um, one thing that scares me pretty much more than anything about younger generations is growing up in this world where climate disaster, the end of the world is actually a potential reality. And what I see so often is people going, oh yeah, that sucks. You know, like better enjoy this life while I can. There's, there, there was this period of time, and I think in the early 2000s and even today, where people really wanted to take action and help. But what I'm seeing is a, is a really scary decline in that of sort of just acceptance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, as we move toward like the end of the podcast here, I do want to ask you a couple, you've written about a lot of different compelling topics. And I kind of know, we, I don't think we can say on the, on this episode, what you're writing now or what's coming out. Maybe we shouldn't, but, <laughs> um, but you, but you write on a lot of interesting stuff. Um, but I'm curious if you were able to eliminate only one problem that the world is facing right now, what would it be? If you could make it magically vanish, what is it? Is something, you know, on a localized level, like the Me Too movement is something on a global level, like, like, like mm. climate change, what would you make vanish? If you could make it vanish? Mm, okay, so that's, that's a, That's a really good question. Um, and I'm torn. I'm torn between just carbon emissions, period, just putting a hard stop on carbon emissions. Um, and vanish, vanish is a hard word because if, if, if you didn't say vanish, you said something else. Uh, I'm not sure what it would be. I might say capitalism <laughs> <laughs> okay. itself yeah. um, because I think that the, that the reason why we are in the situation we are um, or the world is, has a lot to do with just pure self-interest. Yeah. Um, well, that would be the reason. And I think. Really. Yeah. Capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> I, I did go to Berkeley, so I think I'm required uh, by law to say capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Technically, you shouldn't uh, even be doing this podcast with me. <laughs> it's not probably I, exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we get along so well, Brett, is our completely different attitudes and looking at looking at things. We're able to meet in the middle somewhere, I think. Um, that's that's my favorite thing. I think more people need to figure out how to meet in the middle or at least have the conversations with conversations. You know. Exactly. I was I was just about to say that people need to start talking. That's what mm -hmm. people aren't doing. And and uh, but that starts. Mm -hmm. I think podcasts are more popular than ever now. Podcasts have been around a long time. They really stepped up during COVID. People needed to, you know, hear other people talk and be able to get get through what they're going through by listening to other people and be inspired by stuff. And I think the first part is you listen, and then eventually you're going to talk. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's how it is when you're mm -hmm. a baby. You hear stuff, and then later on you start talking. I think if you hear yeah. the points, you hear the things, and you put together enough data in your mind, you can finally talk about it, and then that's what begins the communication process of people talking about things, solving problems mm -hmm. and figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Bryn, how can people find you out there in the interwebs? Where are you at? How can people see your Iceland photos and other things? Yes, yeah, so they can see it on my website at BrynRankins.com, which is B-R-Y-N-N-R-E-I-N-K-E-N-S. Um, I'm also on most social media platforms. Um, on Instagram, it's because it's Bryn. Um, same with TikTok. And yeah. Yeah. 
Where are you going to next? Can you tell us? Well, I have an opportunity to go to France this summer, um, but I'm not, I haven't fully committed to that yet. I'm not sure where exactly I will be. Um, yeah, so in a, probably in a, either LA or New York. <laughs> and, in, and in a perfect world, what's on your bucket list to still want to hit? The most important place you haven't gone to yet, what would it be? Uh, probably New Zealand. New Zealand, yeah. Well, hopefully they open mm -hmm. up allowing people to go to New Zealand because they're probably one of the strictest countries there is right now for, for, for uh, COVID. But Brent, it was a pleasure yeah. to talk to you and definitely come back to the show again and uh, talk to us in the future. Yeah, it was so good talking with you, Todd. Thank you so Great. much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. There you have it, my interview with Bryn Rinkins. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next time on Quest. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content.